0: Hey friends, I'm back for another reading of the book, The Women of the Bible Speak. We're going to talk about Tamar today. When we look for for expiring women in the Bible, Tamar's story is not exactly the first one that comes to mind. It's strange and uncomfortable, and Tamar makes choices that, let's face it, is no way to be explained to a children's Sunday school class. So her story tends to remain a footnote. One might quickly move past in search of material that's easier to understand and a character who is perhaps easier to relate to. But fast forward past her would be a shame because Tamar is a fascinating woman with a story we need to hear. She's an outsider, not part of a family made of a, made up of of Abraham's descendants who will become the nation of Israel. Nevertheless, she is part of both David and Jesus' family tree. She's also an example of bold choices and of God's redemptive power in the midst of our messy lies. Her story appears in a kind of interlude in the story of Genesis, and that. Placement is important. The previous chapter is at the beginning of story. Is the previous chapter is the beginning of the story of Joseph? It ends with the selling of Joseph into slavery by his envious brothers. The Bible tells us that selling him is Judah's idea in Genesis thirty-seven eleven. That his brothers were jealous of him, and with good reason, they were all sons of Jacob. But Jacob was the firstborn son of the wife Jacob truly loved, Rachel. Genesis 37.3 doesn't beat around the bush, telling us that Jacob loved Joseph more than any, any of his other sons. So he was lurk, looking to avert a worse fate, both. The brothers' original intention was to kill Joseph, but Reuben convinced them to abandon their deadly plan by suggesting that the brothers sell Joseph to a passing caravan of Mandadites. Was Judah hoping to save Joseph from his bloodthirsty brothers, or was it Judah, in fact, the ringleader? Immediately after Joseph is sold into slavery, Judah left his brothers and went to live among the Canaanites. He married a Canaanite woman and had three sons by her. He built a life there away from his father's family. His son grew up and eventually he inquired a wife for his oldest son, Ur. But Ur was apparently no good. Scripture tells us simply that he was wicked in the Lord's sight. Genesis 38, 7. It's at this point that Tamar enters the picture. She was the wife of Ur likely married to him as a teenager. Imagine her situation, a very young woman given in marriage to a foreigner through no choice of her own, living in an unfamiliar culture with a husband so wicked that God decides to kill him. After her death, custom-dedicated that his wife be married to his brother. This is known as Leverick marriage. Lever is Latin for husband's brother, and it was a custom among many Semitic peoples of the ancient Near East. It later became enshrined as part of Jewish law in the Torah. The eye behind it is a simple one. If a married man died without leaving behind any sons, it was the duty of his brother to marry the widow and have sons with her, sons that would be counted as dead brothers' heirs. It was way of an affirming that the dead continue to live and be part of the community left behind. And initially, at least, Judah followed this custom. He dutifully gave Tamar in a marriage to his second son, onan apparently onan was not a fan of an arrangement there is a selflessness in lateric marriage because a male partner has to be willing to recognize the firstborn son he produces with his brother's widow as the heir of his deceased brother not his own onan apparently was not so willing he went through he went through the marriage in public but in private he practiced an early form of birth control that meant Tamar would never conceive a son. As the remaining eldest son of Judah, Onan was likely calculating the economic cost of producing the hair for her. That son would take a portion of the inheritance that would otherwise go to Aaron. Fully aware of Onan's selfless, selfless, selflessness, both physically and automatically, God struck him down too.
1: Alright, <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> now, let me see if I can read for a little bit here. Where are we at here? Okay. It's at this point that Judah apparently decided that Tamar's seeming barrenness was not the result of wickedness or selfishness of his own children. It was Tamar. She must be the problem. So he sent her back home to her father's house, making an excuse about his youngest son. Sheila, not being old enough yet to enter into marriage with her. In reality, Judah had no intention of letting her within ten miles of yet another son of his. Leviratic customer no. Custom no. tells us exactly what Judah was thinking. He may die too, just like his brothers. What choice did Tamar have but to obey? And trust that Judah would eventually do the right thing. <laughs> The Bible tells us that Tamar went to dwell in her father's house, but not how she felt about any of this. We he not know if she loved her or how she felt about Onan? She may never have loved them. She would not have been consulted. Marriage was something arranged by men, a business deal to struck, like the sale of goats and land. If Tamar was a business deal, then she had just gone bankrupt. Twice a widow, She now waited to see if her father-in-law would make good on his implication that she would one day become Sheila's wife. The news of Tamar's bad luck had probably spread. Most likely, there were whispers, rumors, and quiet chuckles inside the tents about the woman who was devastatingly unlucky, an object of ridicule. Tamar must have felt the label, too, a fatal plague that no one would want to contract. It would have been easy for Tamar to say, well... They must be right about me. I must be truly worthless. And maybe Judah is right. Maybe it really is all my fault that his sons died. Like Job, she could have sat on a dung heap and wailed about how her life had turned out. No marriage, no future, no prospects of any kind of normal life. But being independent in her father's house until the day she died, that's not what she did. She didn't lose sight of the fact that she was... Judah, that it was Judah who had done the wrong thing. She formulated a plan. Here is where the story goes off the Sunday school rails, because after realizing that Judah has no plans to join her in marriage with his son, Shelah, Tamar decided to trick Judah into sleeping with her. She took off the distinctive clothing of a widow and wrapped herself in a veil, and journeyed to a place where she knew Judah would pass on his travels. Tamar's face was so was obscured so that her father-in-law wouldn't recognize her. Assuming she was a prostitute, Judah, who himself had become a widower at this point, said, Come now, let me sleep with you. She accepted, but drove a hard bargain. He would have to leave his signet ring, cord, and staff until he could return with payment. These details, especially the jewelry, tell us just how wealthy Judah must have been. They give us a glimpse... Where we go here? They gave us a glimpse of the power he had, in stark contrast to Tamar's lowly position. More important, such items in those days were a form of identification. The closest Tamar would come to having DNA proof when she needed it. Once they slept together, Tamar took her father in law's ring cord and staff and left before he could recognize her. Judah did try and find her later, sending a friend to deliver the payment and get his things back, but she had vanished. The friend even asked around about her. Hey, what about the one who sits by the side of the road here? No one had ever heard of such a woman, and Judah was worried he could become a laughing stock if he pressed the issue. Three months later, Tamar, now pregnant, was so far along it could no longer be concealed. Judah was outraged. Genesis 38.24 documents his reaction. Bring her out and have her burned to death. In sending her away from his home, Judah had effectively repudiated her, and he would have been happy to never hear from her again until she publicly embarrassed him with a pregnancy. He had been happy to ignore her until now. Now suddenly he cared a lot about what she did and how she made him look. Remember, he was still responsible for her. People must have been whispering. Isn't that the woman who was... Yes, to Judah's sons. Oh, poor Judah. The snickers in the tent started up again. Judah was publicly humiliated. And he wanted to make Tamar pay for it, even if it meant putting her to death for making the exact same error he himself had made just a few months before. Tamar sent him an unmistakable message, delivered delivered his signet, ring, cord, and staff. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. Then she added, if you recognize those seal and cord and the staff these are, see if you recognize them. In those times, these items truly would have equated to a paternity test holding a mirror up to a man's actions. Judah could, have den- could not deny they were his. Did he erupt in fury? Did he double down on his resolve to burn Tamar to death, so that no one would ever know of the mistake or his hypocrisy? He did none of those things. Instead, bowing his head, he acknowledged the justice of her reproof and made a remarkable admission. She is more righteous than I, since I would... Give her to my son Sheila. Some translations in Hebrew translate the Hebrew as simply, She is righteous. I am not. Judah recognized that the root of the whole tangle was his own decision not to let Tamar marry Shelah. Yes, she behaved immorally, but what if he had dealt justly with her from the beginning? Judah at last admitted that he was the root of the problem, not Tamar. It's a remarkable moment and it calls to mind another moment when a man of God's sins is called to account for it. In 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan appears before David to confront him for murdering Uriah and sleeping with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Like Judah, David didn't explode into rage. He listened stricken to his heart and fell at the prophet's feet in repentance. Judah's repentance was even more remarkable, though, because... It was not a mighty and well-respected prophet who reproached him, but a woman, a woman, yeah. a woman pregnant outside marriage, no less. He could have brushed her aside and had her killed along with her unborn child, but he listened, bowed his head, and admitted that she was right and he was wrong.
0: Tamar, a woman with no power, no standing in her community, and no male protector looking out for her, delivered a powerful rebuke to Judah and was heard. We can imagine that she must have felt being escorted into his presence for the first time since their fateful meeting of three months before. Did Judah bow his head before her, the mother of his unborn child? Was she feeling vindicated? It would have been easy for Tamar to wait to be brought into Judah's presence and there publicly to announce the truth. After all, wasn't that what Judah deserved, some good old-fashioned public humiliation? It would have been such a moment of trumpet for her. Imagine all the mocking contempt that had heaped on her all those years now heaped on Judah instead. What a tempting thought that must have been. But Tamar choose, chose a different path. She had a message sent privately to him instead. She chose not to publicly immu- hum- humiliate the man who was trying to have her executed. She invited him to connect the dots and await his decision. The sequence of events reminds us that seeking justice doesn't require humiliation. We can advocate what is rightfully rightfully ours without destroying others in the process. Tamar did not end with the amount a moment of truth. She went on to give birth to twin boys, Perez and Zerah. These sons of Judah had an important role to play in salvation history. In the first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we read that the genealogy of Jesus. Abraham begot Isaac. Read the familiar words Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Zarin, and Zarin begot Ram. Ram was the great 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 grandfather of King David. And so Tamar's little boy, son of an outsider, son of a Canaanite woman, became part of the royal line of the kingdom of Israel. Tamar's name was even invoked in a special blessing we'll see in our next story. But this was the geology, not just of David, but of David's divine descendant, Jesus. Tamar is part of that lineage and is one of only three women named in Matthew's geology. Tamar helps the Messiah possible, and this non-Jewish candidate outsider who was pregnant out of redlock and faced a certain death became the ancestress of Christ. Tamar's story has a significance within the narrative of Genesis 2. Remember, her story happens in the middle of Joseph's story. The narrative suddenly pauses to give us a seemingly random interlude with Judah and Tamar. Joseph's story picks back up immediately after the birth of Perez and Zerah, continuing without interruption for the rest of the book of Genesis. At first glance, it makes no sense to find the story shoehorned into Joseph's. What does this sordid till tell have to do with anything. Judah gives us a clue.
1: When Joseph was thrown into the empty pit by his bloodthirsty brothers, it was Judah who came up with the idea to sell him away. It was Judah who said, let's get rid of him. But at the conclusion of the story, when Joseph's frail elderly father, Jacob, faces the possibility of sending his beloved son, Benjamin, away into Egypt, it is Judah who steps forward. Then Judah said to Jacob, his father, Send the boy along with me, and we will go at once, so that we and you and our children may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame of you for all my life. When they arrived in Egypt, the worst appeared to have happened. The capricious governor, in reality, Their brother, Joseph, in disguise, demanded that they leave the hapless young Benjamin with him. Judah put his own life on the line. Take me instead of him, he pleaded with the governor, offering his own life for his brothers. It was Judah who had grown up and changed the most of all his brothers. But why? What explains the change from the angry, vengeful young man in the beginning of the story to the mature, compassionate man at the end? Was it his humbling before Tamar? Tamar's action forced Judah to confront his own wrongdoing, probably for the first time. Judah learned what it was like to say in public, I was wrong. Tamar showed him the way of righteousness and how to be a person who stands for right when no one else has the courage. There is an ancient Jewish tradition that says that to publicly shame another person is the same as committing murder. Because regardless of your reasons, you have murdered that person's reputation forever. It is the sort of teaching that reminds us to be careful with our words. But which of us in Tamar's shoes could have resisted the temptation to make sure Judah got a little of what was coming to him? Tamar's story is a beautiful illustration of how God can redeem the most ill-advised human plans. Tamar likely felt abandoned and may have had many different motivations justice, desperation, and attempt at preserving life she thought she was going to create. But hadn't she seen God deal with the wrongdoers in the past? It cost her both her husband's lives. A widow seducing her father-in-law in order to become pregnant seems like an irredeemable plan at first blush. But God is masterful at making good out of our messes. Tamar's story is woven into the fabric of lineage of Jesus Christ. No matter how unfaithful we may be God is always working in each of our stories able not only to heal us but to use our human frailty to miraculous ends
0: well that's our story of Tamar next time we will be talking about Ruth I will see you later friends